0: Let's open our Bibles to Psalm 19. Psalm 19, the other passage that you read last evening. It's a privilege, it's a pleasure to be able to speak to you today. I remember many years ago, you know, the the dilemma when you're young and you're reflecting on being in the ministry is what will I, will I have enough to say? <laughs> now it's not an issue of who will I have enough to say, is there enough time to say a tithe of what I'd like to say? Right. <laughs> but let's just have a good time in the truth the Lord has shown us, yes. and the nature of truth in the Word of God, and rejoice in it. Psalm 19 is one of the simplest psalms of the 150 of them. I gave you the vision for it. The first six verses describe the fact that God has revealed himself in the natural creation of the heavens. The, the chapter starts off with the words, The heavens declare the glory of God. Amen. There's a sermon preached every day. That's right. When you look outside and let that sun shine on your face and embrace you in its warmth. Amen. If you watch a sun rise or a sunset, it's a little different in its beauty and the display of the glory of God. But the glory of God is declared. Right. It is preached. When you read some of these verses here, day unto day, uttereth speech. See, it's a sermon. Right. God has preached to everyone on the planet, day unto day, day after day, every day. Right. And the display of the heavenly bodies to earth it utters a speech, and night unto night shows knowledge. Shows right. knowledge. We're taught things if we look at the sky. There is no speech nor language. It doesn't matter about the Tower of Babel confusing men's languages. Right. They can all understand this language. Amen. There is a Creator. Amen. With great glory and power. Their line, that is part of a servant, Their line is going out through all the earth. Their words. Does that have words? The glory of God. Amen. Romans chapter 1 says we can know His eternal power and his Godhead, by looking at the natural creation. And so we had the first six verses. The verses 7 through 11 describe the written revelation of God in his word. It's just just called different names here as a lead-in to all the words he's going to use for the written scriptures in Psalm 119. 19 and 119 are very closely related to the Psalms. Looking at verse seven, we have the law, the testimony, verse eight, the statutes, the commandment, verse nine, the fear, the judgments. Those are six descriptive words about the written revelation of God. And that written revelation is able to make us perfect in verse seven, it's able to make us wise in verse seven, it rejoices our hearts, it enlightens our eyes in verse eight, In verse 9, it endures forever, and it is true and righteous altogether. No matter what you read in the Bible, when you rightly understand it, it is absolutely true, and it is absolutely righteous. And so we have in our hands a written revelation from God far superior to the natural creation that tells us His will for our lives. David said, and David had more than any of us have. He was a king of Israel, a very popular king, a beloved king. He said about the word of God in verse 10, more to be desired are they than gold. And what's the they? The words of scripture, the verses of the Bible, the different parts of it, the statutes, the judgments. More to be desired are they than gold. Yea, than much fine gold. David said, If David has more of an ability and a perspective to be able to say this about the Word of God than we have, and we should believe it. It's sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. So we get two things out of verse 10. The Bible is valuable, better than gold. The Bible is precious, tasteful, delightful, because it's better than honey. Honey is not necessarily valuable. Honey is tasty. It's pleasant. And so we have value and pleasantness. We have value and pleasure that comes out of the Bible. Verse 11, moreover, in addition to the value and the pleasure, moreover, I get warned, and when I keep them, there is great reward. right. What else do you want? (laughs) Then the Bible. What else would you want? Look at it. It's valuable, better than even fine gold. 24 karat stuff of the 99% variety, 99.99% variety. It's sweeter than honey in the honeycomb, yet it also warns us to keep us out of errors that would cost us with God and men, and He rewards us when we obey it. What a book. Amen. It's full of truth. It has no lies in it. There is nothing forward nor perverse in it. No lie is of the truth. It is absolute truth that we have. We just need to learn it. We need to love it. We need to have him open it to us. We need to obey it. Right. verses 12 through 14, the last three verses, are a right response to the word of God. Show me my secret sins that I don't see. Keep me back from presumptuous sins. And Lord, let everything about my life please you, is verse 14. That's all. Psalm 19 is beautiful about God conveying truth to us and a right response to it. For anyone listening to this sermon in another venue, we have had preparatory reading suggested of these passages, Psalm 19, Isaiah 44, verses 9 through 20, (laughs) 2 Corinthians 4, 1 through 7, 2 Thessalonians 2, 9 through 15, 2 Timothy 2, 23 through 26, and 2 Timothy 3, verse 1 through chapter 4 and verse 4. Let's go now to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. I've taken you to this passage many times. We are going to this passage right now for two reasons. First reason, it has the three goals that I have for preaching today. Second, it gives us an example of the attack against truth right here in the same passage. Right. I take you here because it's one of the better passages to remember about truth. Amen. I might be as obscure about this passage today as Paul was in writing it. And I hope you understand that. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, beginning at verse 9. Even him whose coming is after the working of Satan with all power and signs and lying wonders and with all deceivableness and unrighteousness in them that perish, because they receive not the love of the truth that they might be saved. And for this cause, God shall send them strong delusion that they should believe a lie, that they all might be damned, who believe not the truth, but have pleasure in unrighteousness. Right. But we are bound to give thanks always to God for you, brethren beloved of the Lord, because God hath from the beginning chosen you to salvation through sanctification of the spirit and belief of the truth whereunto he called you by our gospel to the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, brethren, stand fast and hold the traditions which ye have been taught, whether by word or our epistle. Amen and amen. Amen. This wonderful passage of scripture, there's two S's, there's two beings that are named with an S involved. There is Satan involved in false worship, and there's the spirit of a living God involved in true worship. Satan is behind the man of sin in this passage that deceives so many and has deceived so many for so long. And there's the spirit of a living God that has sanctified us, regenerated us, and caused us to believe the truth. Right. God sends strong delusion upon some men. God sends the truth and his apostles to other men. And the responsibility we have is to hold it fast. When the Bible says to hold something fast, it needs to be faster than our grip that we don't let go of it. And so there's three things that we want to do. Truth is not a right. Amen. Now we look at this passage, we realize truth isn't a right because God is sending strong delusion to some and he's sending truth to others. Therefore, it is God's prerogative. And if he chooses to send his truth to us, it's an incredibly great blessing. For which we should give thanks, which is number two. Truth is not a right. By nature, we reject truth. By regeneration in a new man, a new nature from God, being born again, we love truth. But until we're born again, we hate truth. So it's God's right to give to some, to withhold from others, to send strong delusion to some, and to send truth to others. And this is the word of the Lord to us. So number one, truth is not a right. You can see in this passage. Number two, we should give thanks if we're a recipient of truth because it's not our right. Therefore, it is a privilege and a blessing and a favor that we have it. So we look at verse 13. We are bound to give thanks always because it was to God, not to men, not to teachers, not to parents. It's God that sends truth. And opens our hearts to it by the sanctifying power of the Holy Spirit. Right. So we're bound to give thanks always to God. Because He made that choice for us to have the truth. That's what verse 13 says. We are bound to to give thanks always to God for you, brethren beloved of the Lord, because God hath from the beginning chosen you the salvation through sanctification of the Spirit, His own work to prepare us for truth. And then he sent that truth to us through the apostles, right? And there's only two ways you can get truth by God's revelation. in The New Testament, the spoken word of apostles. They're long gone. The written word of the apostles in their epistles. And right. so it says there in verse 15, that we're supposed to hold past the truth as we've been taught. The Thessalonians heard Paul in person. By word or our epistle. Our, the apostles' epistles. That's where truth comes from. Straight from God to the Holy Spirit through his apostles. The third thing we want to understand is our responsibility to the truth. And that's in verse 15. Therefore. I don't like to be redundant, but I do like to remind you when you see a therefore, you ought to be looking for the conclusion that's being drawn. Therefore is, what is therefore therefore? What is a therefore therefore? Therefore, it's drawing a conclusion from truth is not a right, truth is a blessing, we should give thanks, yet there's more. Therefore, brethren, stand fast and hold the traditions which he has been taught. And those Thessalonians have been taught two ways, we've been taught one way. They were taught by the personal presence of Paul, and they were taught by his written epistles. We've been taught with the written epistles of Paul, and the written epistles of Paul are better than being taught by Paul, right. or being taught by God, or being taught by anyone else, because Peter said that a written epistle is better than hearing God's voice from heaven, and he said so right. in Second Peter chapter one when he re- recounted his experience on the Mount of Transfiguration, where he himself heard the voice of God in the presence of Jesus, Moses, and Elijah, and he told his audience in second Peter chapter one, that we have also a more sure word, And that's the written scriptures, because he goes on to describe the work of inspiration by the spirit of God. So those are the three things. What a contrast. Do you understand that there is strong delusion sent to some that they would believe a lie? To believe a lie is a terrible curse in life to think that it's truth, but you're believing a lie, and you don't know better because you think it's truth. And God has done that to a large part of the human race because they received not the love of the truth that he did offer them. And his offer of truth begins with creation. Romans chapter 1, Psalm 19. We already had the answer given to us in a pop quiz that was asked. What were the two things men did when God revealed himself through the creation? They were not thankful and they did not worship him as God. And if we, listen, what have they done in our schools? They've taken God out of our schools. They've taken prayer out of our schools. They've taken Thanksgiving out of our schools. No one's taught in our schools anymore what Thanksgiving's about. They call it Turkey Day. They call it football day. They thank first responders and firemen. That isn't what Thanksgiving's about. Thanksgiving in our nation is to thank God for His abundant blessings upon our nation in every way, shape, and form. It's to thank God only. We are not thankful to firemen or first responders or ambulance drivers on the fourth Thursday of November. We're thankful to God for sparing us and providing for us and keeping us and blessing our military and blessing our farmers to provide the cereal for our tables if they eat that junk. <laughs> Give me bacon and eggs. Amen. Mm-hmm. And more. Bacon and eggs. Amen. Right. Never mind that. <laughs> we're to thank God. Right. Yes. Because they were not thankful to God in Romans chapter 1, and because they did not worship God, they wanted to bring evolution in instead of creation. Right. They wanted to get rid of a creator God. God rewired their brains. Like we see it in America today. Right, right? Yep. Transgender junk. That's because God's rewired their heads. He said he would do it. It's the fulfillment of prophecy. Because they held the truth in unrighteousness. They did not obey a a mighty creator that had given them existence. And so Romans 1 teaches us that. And, And that is what it means when it says, here in verse 10, Because they received not the love of the truth, they might be saved. God offers truth to all men. But they turn away from it right. because they do not want a creator that can tell them how they ought to be living their lives. Right. And so, because they turn away from truth, and we first did it in the Garden of Eden. Are you with me? He's telling us why he sends strong delusion. Right. I know that verse is too hard for some people almost, but it should never be too hard if it's in the Bible. Right. If it's in the Bible, it's just right. It's not too hard. It's not too soft. It's just right. It's what God is telling us. He sent them strong delusion that they should believe a lie that they all might be Mm damned because they didn't want the truth. That's what happened in Eden. We didn't want the truth. We could have had the tree of life. There were two trees God made. Adam and Eve could freely eat of the tree of life. But they chose the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and it cost us death because that had been promised. They chose a lie over truth. And men have done it ever since. Yes. Now, in this passage, where truth and lies are contrasted in such strong language, and we are told in verse 15 to stand fast. Stand fastened in one place. We're not going to change here. Amen. Stand fast and hold the traditions. Hold, hold which God's given us by his apostles. And since we're 2,000 years too late to hear Paul and Peter and James and John in person, we read their epistles that they gave to us that the Lord's preserved to us. And that was an issue right here in this chapter. Now Paul is obscure. Paul is obscure. Yeah, just like I'm being this one. Paul is obscure. Verse 5, Paul said, Remember ye not, that when I was yet with you, I told you these things. Mm-hmm. Paul was obscure <coughs> in his epistle because he had told them in person. And the reason why is because there was, a, there was a Roman Empire that would have killed these Thessalonians if he had stated the truth plainly that the Roman Empire was about to come to an end. So he didn't say it plainly. He said it obscurely. And We understand it because we have Daniel chapter 7 Amen. and other places in the Bible But now brethren There are three things three events in this prophecy The three events are the coming of Jesus Christ The man of sin being revealed and a great apostasy mm-hmm. And the Apostle Paul puts them in order. That's right the way that most of us were raised was to believe that Jesus Christ is going to come in something called the rapture, then the man of sin will be revealed, and he'll bring about a great apostasy. But what does Paul say? Paul said, verse three, let no man deceive you by any means. Amen. So we have deception versus truth right here. You know, we live in a county of 800 square miles and 500 Baptist churches and the other 499 disagree with us on the order of these three things. How in the world can that happen when Paul is about to put them in order? They say Jesus first, man of sin second, and a great apostasy because of him. What do we believe? We believe what Paul wrote down in his epistle and we're going to stand fast and hold on to it and not let it go. Verse three. Let no man deceive you by any means. No man. It doesn't matter how popular, prevalent, persuasive, or intelligent. Let no man deceive you by any means, for that day shall not come. Jesus Christ cannot come back except there come a falling away first. Oh, I love the Bible when it tells me, in a list of three things, what's supposed to be first. First, there has to be a great apostasy away from apostolic doctrine what the apostles taught in the New Testament. Second, the man of sin is revealed when the Roman Empire is taken out of the way. Third, Jesus Christ comes. Why do they get it backward? Why was I taught for the first 20 years of my life by the best parents a young man could ever have that it was the other order? Because he and my father had been taught that. Because there's so much error being taught. Evil seducers show wax worse and worse. Can it be any plainer than verse 3 about the order? Jesus Christ can't come. He's third. There's got to be a great falling away or apostasy away from apostolic doctrine. (coughs) Then, the man of sin revealed, then Jesus returns. That's what we believe here. Why do we believe it? Because the Bible says so. Why do they believe it? Because C.I. Schofield told them to believe it. Okay, that's why we use 2 Thessalonians. Let me give you a few examples of truth and lies and see if it gets you excited a little bit about what that doesn't get you excited, I don't know if I can excite you, but let's try this. The first president of our nation was its greatest president. God gifted George Washington to be an exceptional man, man, an exceptional leader, an exceptional general. An exceptional president, an exceptional statesman. He was far larger than anyone around him. When he entered a room, he commanded attention. He was six foot three and he weighed 230 pounds. Men were a few inches shorter then than they are now. When he entered a room, with his carriage and with the way he handled himself and his speech and his sobriety, and his accomplishments known by those in the room, he commanded the attention of everyone in there. He was a great president. Right. He was a great man. I am saying nothing about his Christianity. That's between God and him. I don't care if our president is a Christian or not. I just want him to be a great man and a great ruler. If we end up with one of those being a Christian, then we'll thank God, but we don't need that. We just need a good ruler. You don't. When you apply for a job, you don't rate the CEO of the company or the board and ask them if they're all professing Christians. You just hope they have their act together and have a few wits that God's given them on how to make money. Right. Anyway, George Washington, he was 67 years old and on his great estate at Mount Vernon. And he went out in the morning and rode around checking out his estate. And it started out with snow, then it went to hail, then it went to rain, he got soaked. It was in the 30s. He came home, his servants, his attendants, his wife, recognized his secretary that was always there, recognized that he had developed a sore throat. If you spend a half an hour reading some of the descriptions of eyewitness accounts, right? of this man's death, you'll be as upset as I am right now, and I'll try to keep my upsetness inside me." A little bit of it. He he had a raspy voice. They, They knew it. They saw it. He shared the duties of reading the newspaper that night with his secretary. His secretary read to Martha and the others there, which was his common practice. When he got in the house, it was time to eat. He would ordinarily change his clothes from the damp ones he had had an overcoat on, but his clothes were damp from being out all day. He didn't change them because he was known for punctuality. Do you understand, everyone in here, do you understand that there are choices you make every day, all the time, that express your temperance or your lack of it? The next day, he went back out and marked all the trees on the property that were to be removed. It was wet again and cold. When he came in it was obviously worse and he knew it was worse and so he retired that night of the 13th of december of 1799. in the middle of the night he called his wife and and she knew that he was in dire straits but he would not let her go get a doctor because he didn't want her to have to travel in the cold the few the little distance to a doctor's house That's a man. Also not the wisest man, but he made a choice that night that he wasn't going to subject his wife to the elements. Right. So morning came. Time is a wasting. Time is a wasting, isn't it? When we have (laughs) symptoms, are we supposed to get them checked? Is early detection better than later detection? Right. He told his servant to come in and bleed him. What? instead of reading the newspaper where there's never been any truth he should have been reading the bible and he knew the bible he commended the bible he praised the bible he would have only had to read the chapter nine in the bible to know that he shouldn't have asked his servant to bleed him so he asked the servant to bleed him you to, you to read you ought to read the exchange between the servant because the servant did not like punching a hole in the greatest man on earth at the time And the man, the greatest man on earth at the time said, oh, open that thing up, give me a hole. So he got bled. Then the first doctor arrived, bled him again. Then the next doctor arrived, bled him again. He got bled five times. They bled 3.75 liters out of a man whose blood volume was seven liters. They killed the president of the United States in their ignorance. One of those doctors knew that he needed a tracheotomy because his epiglottis was infected. He had epiglottitis, which has been studied. Doctors have studied this case for the last 218 years, since 1799. They now know what he had. The tracheotomy was the only way they had back then to get inside there and open that flap up and let him breathe. He knew he was going down. He was a man to the very end. He got up at the very end and dressed himself, having already told everyone in the room, one by one, that this was it, that he knew he was going down. He dressed. He wrote out his last wishes. He told them about his burial arrangements. He told them who was to take care of his papers. He arranged himself in bed, and he gave up the ghost. They bled him to death. He bled himself to death. Okay, what is all that for? Pastor, you don't tell us stories like this very often. I like this. You can preach as long as you want. Let's go to Genesis chapter 9. That's right. Oh, but a stately man. He was in his bed even though he died. Read it. There's many eyewitness accounts. Genesis chapter 9. How important is truth. (coughs) <coughs> Let me ask you this question. How important is every word of God? Every word of, Do we believe every word of God? Imagine. Let's see if we get it every word here that we need it. For you say, why didn't they give the tracheotomy? Because it was a subordinate doctor that suggested it, and the senior doctor couldn't do it. Not being familiar with the surgery could not cut on the President of the United States, the great father of America, George Washington. Genesis 9, 3. This is God speaking to Noah after he got off the ark. For 1,556 years, men were vegetarians. They did not eat meat. They ate meat after the flood. And this is God telling them they can now have pepperoni pizza, beef wellington, and a good steak. Genesis 9, 3. Every moving thing that liveth Shall be meat for you, even as the green herb have I given you all things. You can now eat everything, Noah, but flesh with the life thereof, which is the blood thereof, shall ye not eat. Right. That verse, if you were to read it with understanding, the life of a body is in the blood. The blood must be taken care of with extreme measures of care. To keep that blood in the body where it is the life of the flesh. There was one woman, oh, I gave that one away, but not really. There were some servant girls in that bedroom of his. There was one woman that did not want him bled, and that was his dear wife Martha. Did not want him bled. Look at that verse. You'd only have to read eight chapters and four verses, and you would know the answer that you want to protect his blood. Can you imagine five bleedings of 3.75 liters? The last bleeding was 32 ounces. That's a quart. That's a liter. God save us from lies. Right. That's the medical profession of 218 years ago. Bleed them. Bleed them again. Bleed them again. Bleed them again. Now that we're all together, let's have a committee decision. Bleed them again. okay. Now what do we do? Get blood into them. Uh, Right? Because the life of the flesh is in the blood. Right. Who do we have for a transfusion? Have you ever seen those guys on a battlefield with their bags of plasma? Slamming blood into those guys as fast as they can? You would think, if we had the doctor's intelligence of 200 years ago, that a battlefield wound is going to boost their health. You know, blow my legs off and let me lose a gallon. I'm going to be stronger. But no, they slammed that plasma into him. All of this that I'm saying is not to talk about the battlefield or George Washington. It's to talk about the word of God and the difference between a truth and a lie. A lie killed our president. The truth would have saved him. Save his blood. Open up that throat. He can't breathe. Can't you tell that? He couldn't breathe. All they kept doing was giving him concoctions to try to get him to swallow. Junk put together. You know, old wives' fables of junk they put together. They just about killed him every time they shoved it in his mouth. OK. Let's come forward 50 years of enlightenment. 48 years. We're in Vienna, Austria. We're in the big public hospital of Vienna, Austria, 1847 where a doctor named Ignaz Semmelweis is making observations about the mortality rate of women giving birth in the section for the poor, where the midwives delivered the babies, and in the richer section, where the doctors delivered the babies. Why was the death rate of mothers, not babies? Mothers. Why were mothers dying at five times the rate where the doctors were working compared to where the midwives were working. You, you know, I love that I get to preach in 2017. You get to go home and type into a Google search box, Ignaz, as I-G-N-A-Z, double M E L W E I S, and read everything you want to about it, and find out whether I'm telling you the truth or not. Mm-hmm. Audiences have never been able to do that before until the internet. But now you can check out anything I say. There's Bible search programs for you. There's Bible commentators to go figure out what Paul was talking about in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and what I'm talking about right now. Inez Temelweiss, he got permission to ask the doctors To wash their hands in a chlorine solution for a little while. He understood that the practice of medicine had changed, that doctors were now also students and were researching at the same time, and these doctors would go over and work on a cadaver, that's a dead body, carving it up, learning about anatomy because the anatomy textbooks were a little deficient, so they were learning about anatomy by carving up dead bodies. Oh, what do you want? There's a woman giving birth? Just give me a second. And he runs down the hall and delivers a baby, leaving little parts of that cadaver inside that woman, killing the mothers. And so Semmelweis got permission for them to wash in a chlorine solution. The death rates went under 1%. But the doctors rejected it all, couldn't see 2 plus 2 equals 4, threw him out, fired him, he ended up in an insane asylum, and died around the age of 50. Okay, what does that have to do with the word of God, the difference between truth and error? Is there a book in the Bible that tells us, almost through its entirety, about the importance of washing yourself when you are near anyone that is sick? The book of Leviticus, the book that we... Pastor, in your one-chapter-a-day program, please, please don't throw me in the briar patch, and please don't ask me to read Leviticus. But 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 it's the book of Leviticus. I'd love you to do a word search of wash, and washings, and water, and running water in the book of Leviticus. They were washing constantly, when there was an infected person, whether it was leprosy or any other issue of the flesh, let alone a dead body. And if right. you touched a dead body, everything you touched had to be washed. Right. It is incredible. Why don't people read the Bible? Do you like the difference between truth and error? You know, a flat earth is pretty stupid. All you've got to do is wait for a lunar eclipse. And what shape do you see appearing on the surface of the moon when the earth gets between the sun and the moon? A square? (laughs) It's round. When a ship sails away from you, does the mast disappear leaving the hull? Or does the hull disappear leaving the mast? Do you know what that means? The earth is round. Mm -hmm. Did you know you didn't need either of those? If you were a blind man with a cane, it, you could read, or you could have read to you, excuse me, on that one. You could have read to you, Isaiah chapter forty, and verse twenty-two, that it's the circle of the earth. Look at the ignorance. People thought that uh, you know there was this flat earth on the back of some monster, and if Columbus sails too far to the west, he's going to fall off the edge into its hungry mouth, or what? You know, just all these errors. How about capital punishment? Most of the world thinks that capital punishment is barbarian and cruel. What do we think? It's an obvious no-brainer. If you take a person's life, your life should be taken. It's that simple. Do you know how far you have to read? Eight chapters of Genesis, and to the sixth verse. So let's just progress down. We've got eight people on Earth. Now, when there's eight people on Earth, if anybody starts murdering, does that reduce the population significantly? You can't have murder when there's only eight people. So we have verse 6. Whoso sheddeth man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed. For in the image of God made he man. And individual life is important. We want to protect life in the womb, so we hate abortion. We want to protect life after it's out of the womb, so we hate murder. Abortionists and murderers should both be put to death Mm -hmm. if our nation had righteous laws. We don't take that into our own hands because that belongs to the civil government. Mm -hmm. But if our civil government was following the Bible, it would put both to death, and the Bible covers a in a passage in Exodus Mm -hmm. about them being put to death for the death of the seed in a woman. That's all you have to do. All you gotta do is read that. Now, through the rest of the Bible, it says the same thing that a man who takes another man's life is to be put to death. He's not to be shown any mercy. Right. Period. And so our nation still does it once in a while. But we're one of the few nations on earth that does it at all. But it's truth versus error. There's no discussion about it. There's nobody nicer than God. You're not nicer because you don't put a murderer to death. You're cruel and barbarous when you don't put a murderer to death because you're ignoring the innocent person that died. Putting a murderer to death, there's no innocent person dying. Why are you forgetting the innocent person that got killed? God doesn't forget them because they were made in the image of God. How about corporal punishment? Capital punishment is taking a life for someone who commits a capital crime. Corporal punishment is a physical spanking on a child that is rebellious and disobedient. And the Bible teaches that. And look what we have as a result of not believing that any longer. Truth lies. What do you want? The Bible constantly shows us that it taught us the truth, but our nation is now following lies. I used to have, in person, (laughs) in, in my possession, the 1913 Encyclopedia Britannica. Now you can get almost any edition online. But it was wonderful to go look at the definition for this word that you never read anymore, and I'm I'm almost afraid to say it. But in that edition of the Encyclopedia Britannica was an entry for flogging. Mm -hmm. Flogging. It's just another word for spanking. You say, well, it sounds a little oh." If you you want to hear God's choice of words when it comes to stacking in Hebrews chapter 12 in the New Testament? The testament of Jesus? Scourging. Like a British cat of nine tails? Scourging. Like the Roman instrument of torture? Scourging. Flogging. Flogging. The universal means, this is what it used to say in 1813, flogging. The universal means for maintaining discipline in the home the school, and the military. Amen. Mm -hmm. Now, you're not supposed to spank your children. Just take away their allowance. Tell them to go to their room for half an hour. They can't play. They'll be in there on their cell phone, texting all their friends and telling them what they think of you. (laughs) The Bible told us what to do. Now we look like we're Neanderthal cavemen because we're practicing the Bible and we're practicing what our parents and grandparents, everybody's thanked their children until this generation. Or the previous one, everyone did. Everyone knew that was the way that you raised children that would grow up to have some discipline in their lives. And so we're thinking about truth and error. Look at Daniel chapter eight. Daniel chapter eight. I didn't to any verses for the children because there throughout the book of Proverbs you shouldn't need me to turn you to them oh we do you know how long this list can be multiplied with examples of truth and error truth and error, truth and error thank you Lord for the word of God yes, and, yes. And whatever it says I believe it I do I do suggest that a little study of Leviticus of washings would surprise you it was all covered there Right. God did not want anyone touching a person with an issue, touching something that they had touched with an issue. He had to wash in water. And some, and it says running water. Right. Do you know what the easiest way to handle this flu season is? Wash your hands. Right. You and wash your hands again. It is, it is not complicated. You say, do you do that? Especially after shaking your hand. <laughs> you should see me when I, I leave the car door open in the garage to run inside, not quite, to wash my hands. To wash my hands the way mommy taught me to wash them when she saw me trying my method when I was a young boy. You know, this doesn't quite cut it. There's a few more motions to make. Uh, but it's from Leviticus. I love the Word of God. I love the Bible. It's addressed every part of our lives. We've talked about child training. We've talked about keeping the president alive. We've talked about mothers giving birth. Now, now when you go into a hospital, or you see surgery on television, you know, they're scrubbing their hands. They've got little brushes, and they're just working their fingernails over. It, it's a serious matter, isn't it? They are just working over, and they get gloves on. They're to the waist, <laughs> practically. All they're doing is practicing Leviticus. Mm-hmm. But you know, 150 years ago, you're walking down the street in London, England. Oh yeah, mothering, mothering, precious London. You're walking down the street, splash! Oh, what oh! was, oh, oh! Chamber pots being dumped in the street. First war, second, third, fourth, dumping in the street, sewer running wild. 150 years ago in precious England. We were an enlightened folk, weren't we? (laughs) Dump it in the street. Go back in the Bible. (laughs) Dig a hole and put it underground. Dig a hole and put it underground in the Bible. Mm -hmm. 1500 BC. 3,500 years ahead of the English. (laughs) It's exciting. Amen. Oh, this one. I've taught you this one before. Verse 14. There's a prophecy in Daniel 8. And it says, verse 14, He said unto me, Unto 2,300 days, Then shall the sanctuary be cleansed. If you read this prophecy, it's about world empires that were going to rise. We're on the other side of them. There was the Babylonian Empire of the Chaldeans. Then there was the Persian Empire. Then there was the Greek Empire. Then there was the Roman Empire. And there hasn't been an empire since the Roman Empire of a purely civil sort. William Miller, a Baptist preacher, I want to pick on the Baptist, took a year off from his ordinary duties to get himself a Bible and a concordance and see if he could figure out the 2,300 days of Daniel chapter eight. He muddled through the book of Daniel so badly, he came up with a starting date of 456 BC, which is the starting date of the prophecy in Daniel chapter nine, that is entirely unrelated to Daniel chapter eight. Daniel chapter eight is restricted to the Greek empire, which only lasted 300 years. From 330 BC, Alexander the Great to the Battle of Actium where Augustus defeated the navy of Cleopatra mm-hmm. in 31 BC, 300 years. The prophecy of Daniel 8 must be confined to that period of time. You say, how do you know that? By reading the chapter, because it says in verse 21, verse 20, the ram which thou sawest having two horns are the kings of Media and Persia, and the rough goat is the king of grecia And the great horn that is between his eyes is the first king, that's Alexander the Great. Now that being broken, whereas four stood up for it, that's the four generals of Alexander the Great, four kingdoms shall stand up out of the nation, but not in his power. And in the latter time of their kingdom, what kingdom are we talking about? The Greek kingdom, which was only 300 years long. It tells you, William Miller, William Miller took 456, BC is the starting point from Daniel chapter 9. It doesn't belong connected. Added 2,300 years. I thought it said 2,300 days. It does say 2,300 days. But he changed a day to a year and added 2,300 years. 456 BC plus 2,300 years comes to 1844. Now, if you're a man this crazy, in the early 1800s, and you calculate that Jesus is coming back in 1844, you go nuts, and everyone you tell goes nuts. And so there was the Adventist movement in America, as they all prepared for Jesus to come back to Earth in March of 1844. Thousands followed. It was an incredible phenomenon, especially in New England, of people. It's the Adventist movement. So the day arrived, Some people went up on their houses. Some had sold everything. This is not the first time, and it's not the last. Harold Camping did it about seven years ago in America. Harold Camping was all over the news, saying Jesus was coming back, and he didn't come back. Well, some stood on the rooftops, dressed in white, waiting to meet the Lord, and of course he didn't come back. And so then William Miller adjusted his prophecy by six months to October, just like Harold Camping adjusted his prophecy again. And Jesus didn't come back in October. He hasn't come back since. And that is the foundation of the Seventh-day Adventists. That number 20 billion around the world. From a confused understanding of Daniel chapter 8. And a child can understand that Daniel 8's 2300 days is limited to the Greek Empire. Because it said so. Mm -hmm. Do you know why we prayed the way that we did this morning? Lord. I am but a little child. I don't know how to go out and come in, so show me the truth. And we always want to keep that attitude. We are less than the least of all his saints, and we want him to show us his truth. Solomon Solomon was a very young man. When David died, and he had to become the next king, and that's the way he prayed. Lord, I am but a little child. I don't know how to be a king like David. You've got to give me a wise and understanding heart. Right. and did the Lord ever give Solomon a wise and understanding heart and we want that and you know we have children in our church that can explain Daniel chapter 8 and the entire Seventh-day Adventists are still hung up over Acts chapter 2 at verse 17 through 21 use the future tense over 10 times about God pouring out his spirit. Amen? Oh, yeah, Does Benny Hinn think that it's talking about him? Does Kenneth Copeland think that it's talking about him? Yeah. Yes. They think that it's talking about them because of the over 10 uses of the future tense in Acts chapter 2. But Peter, when he preached that sermon, said, I am now quoting Joel. It was future tense to Joel Because Joel was 500 years before Peter. Peter said, this is that. What you people are witnessing, not you, Peter said to his audience, what you people are witnessing right now with the tongues of fire on our heads and all of us speaking different languages is the fulfillment of Joel from Joel chapter 2. And he quoted it accurately. (coughs) And to quote a prophecy accurately includes a future tense Right from that writer in the past yes. that was looking forward to the day of Pentecost, there isn't any residual prophecy that affects our generation. It was fulfilled on the day of Pentecost because Peter said, "This is that spoken by the prophet Joel." Right. right. many people are confused about how they get to heaven. <coughs> Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. John 14, 6. Peter preached in Acts chapter 4 and verse 12. Neither is there salvation in any other. For there is none other name given among men under heaven whereby we must be saved in the name of Jesus Christ. Paul said that every church should be established on the foundation of Jesus Christ and let no other foundation be laid than that which has been laid, that Jesus Christ is the foundation. Jesus Christ is the foundation. He's the head, he's the cornerstone, he's the only way, he's the truth, he's the life, he's the only name, he's our apostle, he's our high priest. He is our intercessor. He's our mediator. He is everything. There is one mediator between God and men. The man, Christ Jesus. 1 Timothy chapter 2, and verse 5. Amen. And so many other things could be said. We'll take our break. We'll come back. We'll trust the Lord to lead us. In thinking about the thankful spirit we ought to have for truth and the responsibility we have to defend it, promote it, keep it, obey it. May the Lord bless. The preaching of his word. Stand with me. Oh Lord God, what can I say? You have blessed us abundantly. You have not blessed us because we're of a large number. We're a very, very, very small number. You have not blessed us because we're intelligent. Lord we're foolish you've not blessed us because we're diligent because Lord we're lazy in comparison to what we should be Father we thank thee for the truth that you've shown us we are not ashamed of it we're going to preach it we're going to live it we're going to obey it and Heavenly Father what we don't see show us that we might have more of your precious truth we thank thee for the word of God and Lord, if it hadn't been for you opening our eyes, we'd be as blind as William Miller or the doctors that tended to our first president. Yes. Thank you, Lord, for showing us. We are not better. They're likely more intelligent than we. But we thank thee, Lord, yes. that you had mercy upon us and we are still little children this day. Even though much older than when I was ordained, I'm still a little child. Show me your word. I'll preach it. I'll believe it. I'll promote it. I'll obey it and our church will do the same. Bless and sanctify the food that's been prepared. Oh, Lord, you provide it just like you provide food for our souls and truth for our minds. We thank Thee. We thank Thee for the health that we have. We pray for those that are sick, those that are weak. Raise them up. Restore us to full health as a church, and we'll give thee our full praise. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. You are dismissed.